If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. In a sense, this is the, the pivotal event, which, without denigrating the other events that are happening over the weekend, but this is, in a way, the pivotal event um, with the panel discussion on translation. And uh, Anne McLean and Anthea Bell and Frank Wynne and Daniel Hahn from left to right. And kindly chairing the discussion is... Kate Griffin from the Arts Council. Thank you very much and welcome. Um, Good morning and welcome. Um, Thank you very much for coming to join us. Um, As Andrew said, my name's Kate Griffin um, and I work at Arts Council England. Um, And we're delighted to be supporting the London Review Bookshop's uh, World Literature Weekend um, as part of our aim to promote world literature to a wider audience in the UK. Um, I'd like to thank the British Museum for giving us the use of this beautiful library. And also, obviously, thank you to the LRB for organising this weekend, and particularly for putting translators centre stage, a place um, that we're not used to being. Um, Today, I'm delighted to introduce to you a panel of four award-winning translators. Um, On my right, Anthea Bell who is a freelance translator from German and French. Um, Her translations cover non-fiction, literary, and popular fiction. Um, And she's translated a range of German classics, as well as translations for younger people, which I hope we'll talk about a bit later. Um, She's won numerous awards. um, The UK Schlegel Teak Award for translation from German three times, um, the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, um, and the Helen and Kurt Wolf Prize, both for the translation of W.G. Seabolt's Austerlitz. Um, she's won translation awards for books for young people as well, including the Marsh Award for Children's Literature and Translation in the UK, also three times. And I think it was last week or the week before, um, very recently anyway, uh, she won the 2009 Oxford Wiedenfeld um, Translation Prize for Sasha Stanisic's um, How the Soldier Repairs the Gramophone. So we're very honoured to have you with us, Anthea. Um, on, further on the right is Anne McLean, um, who translates from uh, Latin American and Spanish novels, short stories, memoirs, and writing by a range of authors, including Ignacio Martinez Pison, Thomas Elon. Eloy Martinez, um, Julio Cortaza, and uh, Juan Gabriel Vasquez, who was this year, his novel, The Informers, was shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Um, Anne has, in fact, won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize two times. Uh, The first time was in 2004 for um, Soldiers of Salamis by Javier Cercas, and the second time was this year. Um, for the Colombian author Evelio Rosero's novel, um, The Armies. So thank you. Um, on my left, uh, I have uh, Frank Wynne, um, who's been a literary translator, you said, for more than a decade. Um, and he's translated uh, a number of 
French writers from French, including Michel Huelbeck, um, and I believe you jointly won the IMPAC Award in 2002 for Atomized with Huelbeck. Um, uh, Frank uh, won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2005, Five. yeah, for his translation of Windows on the World by Frederick Be Begbeder. And he's also um, published a non-fiction book, um, I Was Vermeer, which was the biography of a forger, the forger, Han van Megeren? Megeren. Megeren, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, on my far left is uh, Daniel Hahn, um, who is a writer, editor, and translator. Um, he's translated four novels um, by the Angolan novelist, uh, Jose Eduardo Agualusa, um, and they are Creole, the Book of Chameleons, for which you won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in, which year was it? 2007. 2007, thank you. Um, and My Father's Wives, which was long listed for the um, prize this year, and Rainy Season, which has just come out um, in paperback. Um, while he was translating Rainy Sist uh, Season, he wrote a, a blog on the whole process of translation um, which was featured on the Book Trust's translated fiction website, which um, I'd recommend you take a look at, or you can buy the book because the blog is in the back of the book. Um, and he's also translated the autobiography of the Brazilian footballer Pele. Um, so there the you go. Hour. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as you can see, there is a theme. All the panelists here um, have won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and many other awards. And we're here this lunchtime to talk to you about translation, making a whole culture intelligible. I mean, it's quite a big topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know that I'm with people who've got plenty to say about it. We thought we'd start off with um, some more general questions um, about translators and their role in bringing world literature into English. Uh, then we'll talk about um, the craft of translation more particularly, and then um, I'll open it up to questions from the floor. So you will have your chance to ask everybody questions. Um, as this is a World Literature Weekend, I thought we could start by discussing the, um, the status and perception of international literature and of translators and translation um, in the UK today. Um, it's a very general question, but I'd like to know your views. Are you optimistic <laughs> or not? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> um, because I'd like you to start, please. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm the only non-British <laughs> member of this panel, I believe. That's not true. <laughs> really? I'm Irish. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> very careful. I know that. <laughs> OK, well, I'm the least um, You're the European. least British person. Yeah, oh, OK. <laughs> But I, but I am optimistic about the status of translation in this country recently. I don't know if I should be, but um, I think, I think we, we sort of tend to get stuck on this idea that only 3% of the books published are translations. But as, <laughs> as Daniel has pointed out, um, there, there are enormous, an enormous amount of books. So 3% is quite a lot. And while our colleagues, my colleagues in Spain or Latin America, mostly have to translate the most appalling drivel, <laughs> whereas <laughs> we get to translate the best books in the world, really, 
um, maybe not all translators in Britain get to translate the best mm -hmm. book. Frank's looking at me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I need to look at you instead of looking at my colleagues. Okay. Well, well, my basic point, which I think somebody's going to disagree with, is that that the three percent of books that are translations that are published in this country are, in fact, very, very good books for the most part. Can I take that up a moment? Because uh, seeing and uh, when we say. English, we take in really Anglo-American, we take in the whole of the English-speaking world. And somebody asked me quite recently, do foreign authors value a translation into English? And I said, you bet they do, because outside their native language areas, um, the vast international English market is their best hope of a higher profile and more sales. This is the other side of the 3% coin, I think. I actually entirely agree with Anne that uh, most of the 24% in France or 25% in Spain of books being <laughs> translated are the collected works of John Grisham and Stephen King. I just hope the translators in question are on a royalty. Um, we do get to translate um, some of the best and the most interesting books. I think that, I mean, I'm optimistic in that, um, partly because sales of books generally are down, but four books in translation have made the Sunday Times bestseller list in the last six months. This has never happened in my lifetime. Um, um, I think if I'm pessimistic, it's only because I find that some editors have a tendency when buying foreign fiction to buy individual books rather than thinking about buying an author and staying with that author over a period of time. There is a tendency to look for a book that will be, as it were, this year's Nemirovsky, this year's um, whatever, Les Bienveillantes or, or whatever. Um, and that, I think, um, does hamper the way in which authors are perceived. A single book will appear and then both book and author will disappear for all time. Um, I not very usefully agree with everyone on the panel about that, that 3%. <laughs> I think the 3% is not the problem. I mean, it is embarrassing compared to everyone else, but much more of a problem is that we publish not very many books and people don't read them enough. Um, I was saying to someone yesterday, given a choice between doubling that 3% to 6%, or keeping it at 3%, but doubling the number of people who read each of those books, I would choose to do the latter. Um, it is, of course, true that because there is a bottleneck, because there is such competition to get published as, as a translated book in this country, the standard is very high. Um, but there is a worry about publishing a small number of very fine books that only the people in this room are going to read. Um, as Frank said, it is heartening that there are books like 2666, like the Stieg Larsson. There are a few books that are in, in translation that are being read very widely. Um, and it may be that that will have some, some uh, knock-on effect. One thing that I think is also helping is crime fiction. A huge amount of what's being read in crime fiction now is translated from um, Swedish, uh, Norwegian, Danish. Um, it's not all wonderful. Um, some of it's very good, some of it I suspect is not very good, but what it does is it has the effect of sort of normalizing this. And you buy a, a, a Swedish crime novel exactly the same way that you buy a Scottish crime novel or an English crime novel or a Welsh crime novel. 
And I think that by, uh, I think the effect of that normalizing it is going to be that not only will readers be less wary, but also publishers will be less wary. When publishers are, are risk averse, I think taking on a new foreign writer is uh, potentially an alarming prospect. There is also a possibility that the 3% will go up in that, um, what Alan was saying, that you know, of the rest of it, an awful lot of what is published uh, is translated into other languages, may well be sort of dross. Um, occasionally it happens, and um, the Zafon Shadow of the Wind has foisted on us, though most of you may not have seen them, a whole raft of appalling middle round <laughs> Spanish conspiracy thrillers in which the Pope <laughs> is an alien, um, most of which have been published in the last two or three years, and I pity any translator who's had to work on them. And I have seen many a French and German would-be clone of the Da Vinci. Clone. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Um, so you're talking about um, the fact that we would like to see more um, world literature reaching the readership. I mean, there seems to be a perception that um, books in translation are difficult. Have you any thoughts on why this is? Is it just um, a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is it to do with marketing? And are there um, any sort of strategies that you know of for bringing world literature to the audience? What do you think about prizes? How effective are they? I think prize, I'm your I latest mean, winner, <laughs> the, the, the only second time winner. Well, I don't have any sales figures. You'll have to ask one of my publishers. If um, I think the first time I won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, it definitely helped. It was the first book translated by the author, and and it does definitely bring attention. And it's, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to happen to an author or a translator or a publisher. <laughs> I doubt that as yet putting the IFF sticker on it um, is going to sell many copies, but what it will do is it will reach a much wider audience because it will definitely be reviewed, mm. because the paperback will be reviewed, because people will talk about it. Um, I think that, yes, it is slightly a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, editors, and you all know who you are, um, <laughs> um, have long believed that translation is difficult because the author may not be able to come over, and they may not be able to speak English, and if they're invited onto the Richard and Judy sofa, um, what are they going to say? Um, or indeed, they may be dead. Know which fork to use. Well, indeed. Um, I, I think that's slightly self-fulfilling. I don't think that... I think that the books that have worked in translation, I don't think... I have no idea how many people out there who've read Stig Larsson know that it's in translation. Um, or care that it's in translation. Um, I think if people were publishing the author and the book and worried slightly less about um, how to get on to um, X or Y um, chat show, then it would um, have a lesser impact. But these are part of the marketing tools of publishing. And, um, and, and the perception of translators in the general public is very strange. I'm forever grateful, actually, to the man who... <laughs> Uh, when I asked what I did and when I told him I was a translator, he thought for a moment, said, ah, oh, tell me, why is all translation so bad? <laughs> and what he meant was those leaflets telling you how to work your new electrical gadget in many different languages. And he gave me a story to begin a talk with to last my life. On the, the Pen Writers and Translation Committee, did you want to talk a bit about their scheme? Yes, that's, that's interesting. I mean, as, as I said, I, I'm, I'm keener, I think, on schemes that promote the books that exist to readers rather than just kind of bumping up this, this, this number as a, as a sort of symbolic thing. 
Um, and one of the things that English Pen does, I mean, Anthea and Kate and I are, are on the, the committee for this. English Pen has a scheme that is sponsored by Bloomberg and that gives a small amount of money to certain publishers of translated books. But the money is not to pay for the translation and it's not to pay for um, the acquisition of the book. The money is just to promote the book. So the publisher has to decide that they're going to publish the book. They have to pay the translator a certain amount of money. But English Pen will give them a little bit of extra money to help them find readers they might not otherwise be able to find, maybe to bring the author over, maybe to have a little event or two. Um, and there, there are a few schemes like that which I think are very good and, and which encourage that end of it, which encourage the, the, the sort of the pull on the publisher, the, the, the readers mm -hmm. buying things. Uh, I have no doubt that publishers would publish more if readers were buying them. Um, know, the English, sorry, Danny. The, the English pen scheme has backed a whole raft of excellent books. If you look on English pen on the internet, you will find a list of all the ones that the, the little Bloomberg grant has backed, including this year's Independent Foreign Fiction Prize winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Maybe we should uh, start to tackle the, the, the title of this panel, Making a Whole Culture Intelligible. Um, how much do you have to know about a culture to translate <laughs> its writers? Um, if, as Anthony Burgess says, translation is not a matter of words only, it is a matter of making intelligible a whole culture. Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, <laughs> I, I do. I think it's a completely impossible <laughs> subject. Um, if you translate as I do from Spanish, and that includes Iberian Spanish, Argentinian Spanish, Colombian Spanish, Cuban Spanish. There are so many different cultures, even within each of those countries, within those languages. There's no way anybody can make, I mean, what is a culture? We, <laughs> we could be here all day. <laughs> but obviously, translation is not a matter of just words. It is a matter of understanding where these words are coming from. and. There's a, an entire, a lot of knowledge that you need behind that. But um, I don't know how, how immersed in the culture you need to be. I mean, it probably helps to live there. But you can find this information as well, and, and your authors mm. can supply it as well. Mm. It's like, like the author, this wasn't a translation, but Stephanie Penny, wasn't it, who set a novel in Canada, and she's scared of flying, so she'd never been to Canada. And she got it all. It was a prize the winning library. book. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think that um, the, there's a, an extent to which you are providing a glimpse into a culture. I don't think that, um, I don't think that if uh, any of us had translated all of the literature of any of the languages <laughs> that we speak, we would then have made that culture intelligible. Um, I think that, the art of, that, that reading even a book in English um, is a piece of cultural interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, it goes without saying that in reading it, from my case in French or in Spanish, and then attempting to put it into English, I am doing a certain amount of cultural interpretation. I can't not. There is no way. One of the things that editors vary enormously in, in terms of what they think translation is. And there are editors, certainly, who still believe that of any given book, only one translation is possible. They could have given it to anyone, and the same translation would have resulted from that. 
I'm here so to tell them. You might as well use the cheapest. Yeah, absolutely. So you <laughs> might as well use the cheapest. Uh, I'm here to tell them this is simply not true. I can, I can only give them a version. And while some of it will be limited by certain things that I might or might not know um, about a culture, it, it will de facto be an interpretation of, of, of what the book is. I mean, it is, it's adaptive. It's not quite as adaptive as, say, a Tom Stoppard translation of Chekhov, given that he doesn't actually speak Russian. Um, and actually, one of the things that was mentioned last night is that um, um, the notion that in an earlier era, an awful lot of authors translated, and that this now happens mostly in theatre. Actually, this now mostly happens in theatre from a crib given to the author by someone else. So the current Jerry Orchard is in fact translated by Helen Rappaport, yeah. um, and then Tom Stoppardized by Tom Stoppard, uh, which doesn't make it any less interesting. I mean, one of the most fascinating translations, um, if you can call it that, um, um, that's been an ongoing translation of Homer's Christopher Logg's version of various books of the Iliad, um, which he's translating from all available things plus sundry pieces of advertising from the 1960s for <laughs> lipstick. <laughs> About um, how much you have to know about a culture. Um, I'm in a, I suppose, a very fortunate position, or at least have been hitherto, that I've only translated, I have four uh, works of what we might call literary translation published, and they've all been by the same author, and he's from Angola. I have never been to Angola. I would love to go to Angola. <laughs> um, I have not yet been invited. Um, but I know very little, in fact, about the culture there. I'm learning, and I'm learning, in fact, through working on his books. But I'm at an advantage only because my Angolan writer is alive and on email, which means I can send him these kind of persecuting questions at 4 o'clock in the morning, asking him to explain things that he takes for granted. So I do have a, a kind of living you know, crib waiting for me at the other end of the email. Um, and I would have found it very difficult uh, to do this if I hadn't had him. Um, because there are, even something which is not, even a, a story which is not about this culture, all of the little details, not only linguistic details, but also the, the way people <coughs> eat and the way people move and the way buildings uh, relate to other buildings in the space or whatever. Um, these are all things which he completely takes for granted and I have no idea. I will, yeah. of course, go to Angola one day and I'll then be an infinitely better translator when I come back. But uh, <laughs> in the meantime... Well, I'm actually... I'm oh, sorry. And you can... If you happen to be translating someone who writes in what was not his or her native tongue, you can get a very interesting insight into their original culture. And that has happened to me twice, quite recently. Sasha Stanisic, how the soldier who was Bosnian-born, came to German without a word, Germany without a word of German. And two decades before him, uh, Rafik Shami, whose big historical 20th century Syrian novel is just out, came to Germany in the early 70s without a word of German. And they both must have soaked up the language, incidentally, like a sponge because their vocabulary is that little bit wider than that of a native-born German writer, mm. which is an odd thing. And I've noticed it with originally Turkish German writers, too. I think these writers are so open to the language and culture of their new countries, while also looking back at their old cultures, that you can have a little bit of double insight. Well, you also have um, languages which um, are secondary languages in the country. I've translated both... 
North African Arabic writers, but also the great um, West African writer Amadou Kuruma, where as a French reader reading them in French, you have already got a sense of an alien culture. They are not using French in the same way. They don't use it to mean, mean the same things, and the rhythms and cadences of it are completely different. I'm then at some level translating the French, but I'm also attempting to translate um, something that was already alien um, to begin with. When I did um, um, Allah is Not Obliged, which was Kuruma's last novel, um, actually I found that there were lots of resources. I went to Human Rights Watch, who sent me um, cassette tapes of um, both English and French testimonials from child soldiers, so that you could listen to them and actually hear the way they spoke and, 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 how, uh, and how they did it. Otherwise, you would have ended up translating into s some sort of vernacular that made it seem as though the original had been ordinary, whereas actually the original, even reading it in French, was, was rather bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we could, this is a good moment to talk about actually what your aims are as translators yourselves. Um, how did you start translating? Why did you do it? Why do you continue doing it? Um, what do you see as the role of the translator? Um, and maybe a little bit about uh, your role in choosing what gets translated, who are the gatekeepers, and how you work with them. Um, well, I initially came to translation as as a reader, um, as a sort of obsessive reader of one particular author, who's Julio Cortázar, and um, finding I, I learned Spanish very late, so I had read all the Latin American classics in English. <clears throat> and um, Julio Cortázar was not one of the ones who I thought was as great as he, in fact, turned out to be when I started reading him in Spanish, which is what initially got me thinking about translation. Although um, he is great in Gregory Rivas's translations. <laughs> but some of the other translations are not, are not so great. And so I started, um, my first translations were retranslations of my favorite Cortázar stories. And I just sort of stumbled into it, really. <laughs> um, I fell into translation purely by accident, um, because when I was young, there were no such things as courses in literary translation, and I had no idea of being a translator. But um, a, a publisher asked my then-husband, who worked in the then-National Book League, I've got this German children's book, who do you know who can tell me what it's about? And he said, I believe my wife can do that. And after that, it's the grapevine. But the first books I did translate were children's books. And since then, I've, I, for a long time, I said I've translated from Asterix the Gaul to Sigmund Freud. <laughs> but that's not, as, that's not as far as you might sound, because my title <laughs> in, the, in the new Penguin Freud was The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, which is about the, the famous Freudian slip, especially the verbal slips, the spoonerisms, the way that we uh, trip ourselves up. In German, it's called a Fehlleistung. It is a failed performance or achievement. You set out to say or write one thing and you end up with something else. And I suddenly realized that when you are translating puns and wordplay, as in Asterix, you are trying to do on purpose what the <laughs> unconscious mind does by accident. Yeah. So Freud and Asterix are not all that far <laughs> apart. <laughs> Twins, practically. I'm sure Freud would be flattered. I'm not sure about Asterix. Um, I also entirely stumbled into translation. I lived in Paris um, in my 20s. And the first translation I ever did, I did for 
my own pleasure and because I wanted the book to be readable to friends of mine because no translation was then in print. Um, sadly, when it came back into print, it was a translation by Ralph Mannheim, so mine wasn't about to replace it. Um, and actually, my first published translations were of uh, Bon Dessine in the brief flirtation with what we called graphic novels in about 1989, um, which were sort of hived off onto minor literary editors who were going to sort of make this what it is in, in say, Japan or, or in France. Um, but through that, I became uh, a publisher's reader. Um, and um, as Christopher McElhose was saying last night, wrote an awful lot of reports that at the end said, on balance, no, on balance. <laughs> and one day I wrote one that said, on balance, actually, I think this is rather good. Uh, and um, uh, the then editor Did he buy said, it? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, the then editor said, okay, well, since you said no so many times, I have to take you seriously. Would you like to translate this? Um, and I did. And um, actually, um, while I mostly worked as a translator until about ten years, until about eight years ago, uh, while doing other work, I went home and did it evenings and weekends. If I was if I was doing it evenings and weekends, it had to be something that I wanted to spend most of my time doing. So. I gave up the day job. Mm. Yes, I didn't mean to be a translator either. It's curious that no one actually sets out <laughs> to be a translator. It just kind of ambushes you, apparently. Um, I uh, was asked by a friend at a publisher to read a book which she'd been sent, which was in Portuguese. Um, I'd read a couple of things from her before. I was doing this as a favor because she doesn't read Portuguese. And I read it and said, this is wonderful. You must publish it. And she said, will you translate it? And I said, yes. And then I thought, Yes. <laughs> um, and from that moment of kind of inadvertent, very sudden hubris, um, I found myself translating this book, which I think if I'd stopped to think about it, I would have said, I, I couldn't possibly, I, I wouldn't <laughs> presume. Um, but this was uh, Nasson Criolo, was the book which we translated as Creole by Zedouard Lagualuzem, who's the, the, the Angolan I translate. Uh, and so I then translated another one of his, and then another, and then another. Um, and as Anthea says, the grapevine uh, is, is how it grows. This is also a, a way in which I think something like the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize does have an effect, not necessarily. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. For, for the market, but actually within the industry that I think, um, as someone who has won the prize, that has made, I mean, I, I won it with only my second book, so nobody knew who I was. Um, and there are a lot of people who, maybe editors or, or, or agents, who have commissioned me to do things since mm. because they only know that I exist because I've, I've won this prize. Mm -hmm. And Can that's I, how it mm. that's how it spreads. Can I revert to what Frank was saying about reading for a moment? Because I guess most of us read a great many books in our languages, and you can't be too careful. Um, Coleridge says somewhere that people subconsciously 
I didn't put it like that, but they think more of a book they've read in a foreign language because they're secretly pleased with themselves being <laughs> able to do so. And I can tell you, this is not so if you're reading for publishers. You know you're asking the publisher to put his money where your mouth is. And you Indeed. must, uh, and there are so many books where you can't, if, if I'm reading, if after the first 30 pages it's obviously hopeless, I say so, and I send it back. But you can go on to the end and find you have got to give a pro and con report. Mm. It's not often you can say, yes, 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 take this book. No, and I mean, if you... Your if motives you, look a bit if suspicious. You are, no, if you I mean, do, if you are going to um, 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 give a positive report, it ha ends up being a much longer report yes. in which you feel you have to argue every mm. point. Um, because effectively, I mean, they may come to you at the end of the day uh, and say, yeah... I don't know, don't know what you saw in that. Now that I've read it in translation, it's a terrible book. <laughs> well, I certainly find that most, most reports I write say, this was good, it was fine, there is nothing wrong with it. If it were easy to publish and cheap to publish and we knew people were going to read it, then you know, it wouldn't yep. hurt to publish yep. it. But actually, it's not so wonderful that it's going to be yeah, worth I mean, squeezing comes, into that very, very... This comes back to the original sort of 3%, yeah. is that yeah. actually... Um, what we're not suggesting, uh, certainly as readers, that people publish is something that's actually perfectly all right and, you know, were it written in English and if it had an agent, it would probably get published and everyone would read it. Well, a bunch of people would read it and think, yeah, it's okay then. Um, um, largely because we, uh, the editors who were asking us to read and we ourselves are thinking, actually, it needs to be a bit better than that, otherwise there's no hope of it ever getting anywhere. Yeah, and, and there's also the fear that the editor's going to ask you to translate it. And if it's not, <laughs> yes, it's <spectacular>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've almost made a rule of never of translating anything I do a yeah. reader's report on anymore. Really? Oh, well, no. I don't actually do it, but <laughs> I have occasionally been bitten where um, the, the editor will come back and say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. And I'll say, well, you're not sure about what? The translation or the reader's report? I mean, if you're faulting me on the reader's report, I'll give you back the 50 pounds, you know. <laughs> but um, if you're faulting me on the translation, that's a slightly different thing. Um, I mean, it is it's wonderful when you do have editors who still read in, in another language. Mm -hmm. And I have always, I mean, any time I have ever recommended someone to, to um, publish a novel, I've always said, I really think you should get another reader's report. Um, oh, yeah, but they do anyway. Yes, um, yes. yes. <laughs> they do, um, yes. Um, we've been talking about publishers asking you to provide reader's reports for books that they've selected. Um, I wondered how often that happens the other way around, that you champion a writer that you think should be brought into English. Um, how does that work? Is that part of the role of the translator? Uh, it's probably part of the role of the translator and the editor say, yeah, no. Yes, I had a reader's report on that a couple of years ago. It's very literary. It'd never sell. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very difficult. I find if you've read something you really like to persuade a translator, it's worth looking at, even if they say, you say you should get other reports. Mm. Um, and rather to my glee, a book I had translated when it got a good review in this country, it had been originally translated for the States. There was a complicated publishing history. It was three years before it came out in English. When it came out in English, American publisher got in touch with me saying, uh, British publisher actually, it was try uh, came out in the States and England simultaneously, but the British publisher who got in touch with me um, had only seen the American publicity, got in touch, said, do you know if there's a British publisher? 
And I said, no, when I was translating this, I was mentioning it like mad to British publishers, <laughs> and none of them bit for a moment. Yeah, um, that, that was definitely my experience when I first started out, that I was always trying to persuade people to publish the books that I wanted to translate, which were mostly by Julio Cortázar. <laughs> but, um, but these days, it's I've actually had some some successes with persuading publishers. Mm. To, in fact, the last mm. two, my two Colombian novels that were on the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize were both books that I, well, one, one of them I tried to convince four publishers before <laughs> someone <laughs> picked it up. Uh, and that's the one that won. But the other one was um, <laughs> taken up by the first editor I offered it to. <laughs> um, I don't have anything to say about this. Um, <laughs> except that I think it is something which distinguishes or potentially distinguishes the role of translators in English-speaking countries from in other countries. Because here we are by and large asking publishers to buy a book sight unseen. Um, to buy a book that they may be able to read a sample of, they may be able to read a synopsis of. Um, most editors in many other countries will be able to read English. Most editors in this country will not be able to read mm -hmm. all of the other languages in the world. Uh, some of them can read one or two, but we are asking them to take quite a, quite a leap of trust in, in our yes, readers' yes, reports and our yes. judgment and the mm -hmm. judgment of other, who write, other people who write reports. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a certain amount of, uh, it, it, it does feel like quite a lot to ask somehow. I've, mm -hmm. I've never s sold anything on my own. Uh, <laughs> well, I didn't sell it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> recommended it. But I, I think we should give credit to those publishers who do um, not just take up a book here and there, but actually take up an author and... Mm. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think yes. that pursuing, pursuing an author, actually looking at mm -hmm. a book and thinking, am I going to want to publish this author one book, three books from now, mm -hmm. is infinitely more interesting than somebody saying, uh, a sort of scattergun, somebody talked about this at Frankfurt and somebody talked yeah, about this at yes. the London Book Fair exactly. um, sort of approach. Now, I think the other cultural role of the translator is to go into Waterstones, take all the translated books mm -hmm. they can off the shelves and put them on the front <laughs> table, <laughs> covering <laughs> up other people's books. Yes, I, I'm not so sure. I'm in two minds about the foreign literature tables. I feel, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. think, A, it's a good thing, uh, but B, it's putting them in a ghetto. Is it? That's yeah. too easy to avoid, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. You can always walk around to the, the easy books. Um, that leads me into my next question, which was about your relationship with the writers that you are translating. I mean, I know that Daniel sends Jose Eduardo Agualusa emails at four o'clock in the morning, um, and he replies, but I was wondering if you would all like to talk about your relationships with the authors you're translating and how they vary. Well, well, they vary enormously. I have, I have one who is like Agualusa, who's Juan Gabriel Vasquez, who answers my emails every day <laughs> or several times a day. And, and his English is excellent as well. And Probably his English, English is excellent, good, which, which, is, which is another issue. Um, the other authors, I usually, I, I used to try to save up all my questions till I'd finished the first draft and had intelligent questions and only intelligent mm -hmm. questions, and wh which I do with most authors, but Juan Gabriel is so trusting. <laughs> I even ask him my really stupid, embarrassing questions, which I shouldn't, and I, I wouldn't recommend it. But, um, but Julio, he, he never answers me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I do save up my questions till I've done Very the whole first draft, if I can because then you can put them in one largish batch and, and very often a problem will solve itself as you go through the draft of a book. Yeah. Um, but um, this of course, I mean all the authors I work with who are alive have been wonderful <laughs> to work with. Yeah. Um, and my children's author Cornelia Funke, whose own English is excellent, um, we have a, a lively correspondence going on throughout the translation of one of her books. And, uh, but of course, I have heard Michael Hoffman say nearly all his authors are dead, which is a disadvantage. <laughs> I would have loved to be able to ring up Sigmund Freud when I was doing the psychopathology of everyday life. When I did another Spoonerism, I could have rung up and said, here's another for your collection. Um, there are and, presumably but, some advantages to having yeah, early but, dead writers. Um, e.T.A. E. Hoffman, who's... Uh, uh, a wonderful picaresque novel, The Life and Opinions of the Tomcat Murr, I translated for Penguin Classics some years ago. There were points in that that needed answering, and I went from scholarly edition to scholarly edition to look at the notes on that novel, and about six scholarly German editors studiously ignored those <laughs> tricky points, <laughs> and nobody could get in touch with Hoffman and say, look, what were you talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. I've found that um, they vary enormously. There are authors who almost want to perch on your shoulder mm -hmm. and watch what you're doing um, and then want you to explain to them what it is exactly that what you've said means if you translated it back. Um, but equally, I have had authors who, I mean, I generally will save all of my questions until the end of the first draft. I have had authors who have never replied to me and who, even getting them through their agent, have never replied to me. Uh, on questions where actually I desperately needed to know because there are issues of fact or there are issues of, I mean, an Algerian novel that I did um, last year where, I mean, he ref the author did not decline to be in contact with his English publisher or with me or with his agent and that was it kind of thing. Wow. Um, um, I've had uh, authors whose sort of approach has been, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you get authors who don't really understand. If they don't speak any other language, they don't understand yep. that you can't say yes. the same thing yes. in mm. another language. Mm. So they don't understand what the questions mean. And they yes, no. Like, I mean, frequently what does they it say, mean? "Look, it I can't that. do this. <laughs> yeah. You said this. There are two possible ways I can do it. Neither of which is going to have yeah. both meanings. What would you like?" And they go, "But I don't understand. Yeah. Like, you know, why can't you just say what I said?" <laughs> Um, if only it were that simple. You know, if only St. Jerome were here. Yeah. I, I once spent about a quarter of an hour trying to convince a French author that you can say in English quite the contrary and quite the opposite and on the contrary, but you cannot say on the opposite. Just like <laughs> that. And that was the one she wanted. Oh, no. <laughs> on the opposite, Daniel. <laughs> um, yes, as I said, I, I have... Uh, one author who is uh, fantastic, and Frank mentioned feeling like the author is looking over your shoulder. Um, in the case of the fourth I Will Lose a book, the one we've just published, because I've been keeping this blog detailing the, the process of translation, um, I discovered about halfway through 
that he's been reading the blog. So I've been describing what I've been doing, and basically, over the course of about 20,000 words, complaining about him online. <laughs> and then he mentioned in an email very casually, oh, by the way, I'm really enjoying the blog. So is my aunt. Um, so that is, that is the most kind of persecuted I felt, having him there, every word I... I but you weren't complaining about him. I complained about him quite a bit, actually. I, I reread no. it recently, and some of it is slightly mean. Um, because what, what I would... I mean, I'm very fortunate in that he not only answers my questions, but he also reads my draft when I get to the end, and, and we discuss it. But I would not normally send him a first draft which has queries and questions and notes and, and various alternatives and things. And of course, that's what's in the blog. So he's seen the absolutely rawest, roughest, um, most amateur-looking. It's, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm working <laughs> at the moment on, on a, a Portuguese novelist who is this weekend receiving his first batch of queries from me. Uh, so I will have a whole new story to, to report next time. Um, but but I, mean, I, I was actually going to say that the same thing that Frank said, is that sometimes you do ask questions and they don't know the answer, um, which, which in a way is completely reasonable, because a lot of the things they're doing when they're writing are not things that are absolutely deliberate all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of us have, have run workshops at the British Centre for Literary Translation Summer School, and what you do is you sit, a translator and a writer, sit with a group of students and work through the, the, a piece of the writer's text. And invariably what happens is that a group comes up with a problem and the translator says to the writer, well, why did you use this word? And the writer will go, I don't know. It was 10 years ago and it's, it's It was lying a, around at the time. Yeah. <laughs> there, there it was, and it, it's quite a nice word, and, and I couldn't spell the alternative. It was nice, why? And then you have to explain that somehow I'm going to have to choose in English between the word small and the word little. <laughs> I can't tell you why these things are different, but I know that they're different. Um, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to kind of draw out of a writer. But, but they also might be different in the group of students. Mm. Might, small might be completely different to little mm. for yes. one person. Actually, the small little one is, is an interesting one. I have an editor who will systematically go through whatever the clean second draft is, and everywhere I've put little will cross it out. <laughs> yes. Because he feels it's a slightly childish mm. word. And this is just, I mean we all have specific relationships to words yeah. um, and words that we like and dislike or whatever. And so he will constantly um, cross out little because it's a word that he only ever used when he was little and therefore <laughs> he thinks of it in those terms um, and, and replace it with, you know, infinitesimal or whatever. I'd be interested to know, I, I haven't really had this problem, but um, I've had it slightly. Um, we are in a slightly different uh, translation into English, um, a slightly different um, problem than many people uh, translating into other languages, in that it is likely that the authors that we're translating have some grasp of English. Mm -hmm. And the worst possible author you can translate is someone <laughs> who did English at secondary school and did quite well, really. Um, and therefore has an opinion. And yes. of course, there's no reason for them not to have an opinion. But their opinion is frequently, you just can't explain to them that, you know, people do not hide between bushes. They hide in the bushes. Yes. You know, yes. It's very simple. There's yes. not a bush, yes. person, yes. bush <laughs> scenario going on here. Um, and the fact that they know that entre means between is not really helpful. You know. No, I, I had an argument once with a German lady who 
Germans on the whole speak very good English, mm. but she mm. didn't. And I was saying that you saw something against the background. Mm. She said, uh, against, but that's Gagan. That means you're opposing. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, trying to explain that there's more than one meaning of yes. against. Prepositions are difficult, aren't yes. they? Oh, yeah. yes. Um, I had one last question, and then I'll open it up to the floor. Um, leading on from this conversation, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about the particular challenge of translating slang and accents and colloquialisms, and if you'd like to share your experience with that. Um, I, I think this is probably another one that we all, we all might agree on, but um, there, there are translators who think that if you're if your or your characters are speaking, you know, swearing in a particular Buenos Aires sort of way, then you have to find a slang which is a completely regional, some something that matches it, like New York. Especially New York translators <laughs> tend to think that that Buenos Aires should sound people from Buenos Aires should sound like they're from Brooklyn or something like that. And and I think that's a mistake. I think well, I mean, some people can do it and some people can do it convincingly, but usually you don't want your characters to sound like they're from somewhere else. You want, them, you want your mm. readers to somehow believe mm. that they're actually reading somebody from Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how we do it. I mean, you have to find something non-specific mm. which still sounds slangy. And that, that's the phrase that uh, Michael Henry Heim thought up for it. Um, Danny wrote a very good note, in, in other words, about the difficulty of substituting a, a British or American regional dialect, dialects are the worst, yeah. uh, for a foreign one. And it chimed exactly with what Michael Heim and I agree, that the best solution on the printed page, with speakers who are not very educated, is to find something we call non-specific demotic. And then you have to watch out for the copy editors putting it right. <laughs> I had a, a good-hearted German girl, heart of gold but no education. Me and Maria were getting on our bikes. I and Maria. She's <laughs> there, Maria and me. And she corrected it. And I said, no, no, no. She hasn't had the benefit of a secondary education. No, I'd absolutely agree that where it's possible, um, it has to be as non-specific as possible. Um, if, you know, uh, were I translating Manon des Sources, then putting it in Yorkshire accents is not really <laughs> going to help people imagine where they are. Um, there ha it would help readers in Yorkshire. It probably <laughs> would, <laughs> yes. If you're in Texas, then it's... Um, if you're in Texas, it would be as uh, unintelligible <laughs> as the original to you if you didn't speak French. Um, there are times when I've um, back-translated into an original language, specifically, both in the case of Kuruma, um, who's characters certainly would mm. speak Malinke, and of uh, Buram Sansal, who I've just done, uh, whose characters would normally speak Arabic. Um, I have occasionally dropped back in Arabic words for dear or darling, mm. rather than translating them out of French, which of course they would also use because it's a secondary language mm -hmm. to them, uh, and into English. Um, and as long as that, within context, seems like it will work, it's rather easier than, um, as you say, have, having, you know, um, your street urchin who's in a, an army in Liberia sounding as though um, he's just going off skateboarding in Stockwell. Because <laughs> <laughs> it destroys the illusion, yes, doesn't completely. it? Yes, Yes, there's something, there's something very uh, distracting about reading something which is set somewhere 
uh, you don't have any connection with and everyone sounds like they're in an Irving Welsh novel suddenly because they've <laughs> chosen this one particular vernacular. I have not read and therefore can't comment on the translation, but there was a translation of uh, Boris Vian's L'Ecume des Jours published about two years ago in the States, uh, which is called um, Froth on the Days, spelled D-A-Z-E, uh, and which clearly is um, drawn almost entirely from a hip-hop vernacular. And I don't really want to read it. Um, I, so I just, I looked at it and thought, hmm, no, it's not. Uh, but it is an enormously difficult thing. And, and as Anthea was saying, the most difficult thing is actually dialect. You have, you know, a posh person goes down the country and is talking to somebody who is clearly not terribly educated. And you know that, you know, were this, taking, were this an English novel, then you can, you can tell what, what the regional accents would be. But the more specific you make it, the more you actually end up doing, and this has happened the case occasionally, attempting to transpose it into Britain or into the United States or into wherever, um, which is simply not doable. Um, I think to do it is, is actually deeply unhelpful. Yeah, but, but there, there have been cases where, um, I mean, I wouldn't do it myself, but there's a, there's a, a sort of team of translators, French-Canadian translators, mm -hmm. who translated um, train spotting mm -hmm. into Quebecois mm -hmm. French, mm -hmm. and then the, they had counterparts in, is it Glasgow or is it Edinburgh? Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> Scotland, yeah. Scottish translators who translated um, some of Michel Tremblay's plays, do you know Michel Tremblay, yeah. a French-Canadian playwright, yeah. into Scottish vernacular. And I saw one of them in London and it was really it, good. I mean, it, and it Michel Tremblay is so... No, there are absolutely I mean, exceptions. There is a wonderful translation of Uberoi uh, translated <laughs> into Irish, I mean, absolutely yeah. Irish. Um, yeah. So that they are mammy and daddy, and, and yeah. you know, well, and it's, it's extraordinarily well done. It, it's something that you can you can get away with with retranslations, things that Indeed. already exist, mm -hmm. and and it's another way of translating. I mean, it's you yeah, can I mean, call it an once adaptation. You know, once you're allowed mm. variations on things, then yeah. yeah, it absolutely becomes something where actually it would be. Fa I mean, I have, I have long <laughs> wanted to retranslate um, Tartuffe set in the early Labour government of about 1997. <laughs> <laughs> where Tartuffe is just Peter Mandelson. <laughs> I, I have wanted recently, and I wasn't allowed to, because um, it's not in the spirit of the critical edition of Kafka, but I've been translating The Castle, and I longed to set it out in conventional English form with a new line of dialogue for each new speaker, yes. which would show everybody how much of that book is made up of direct speech. Mm. A lot of it obsessive duologue, a lot of it near deranged monologue, but mm. it's still direct yeah. speech. But I wasn't allowed to. I yeah. had to leave it all shoved up the way it's published in German. Mm. <laughs> Hello. I'd be interested to know whether you type or um, dictate your translations. I tried, I tried dictating about three or four years ago. I thought I never learned touch typing, which I really should have done. Um, and I type exceedingly fast with four fingers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, so I'll get this. I got the software. I trained the software so it would absolutely recognize what I said and type it more or less accurately. You do still occasionally have to say semicolon and mm -hmm. things like that, which is a little annoying. And I found I absolutely cannot do it. Um, I will read the sentence and then think, uh, 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 
Whereas actually, in the same space of time, if I was <laughs> typing it, I would have no problem doing it. And there is some thought process that goes between one and the other, and I don't know what it is. Yes, I, I type. I am a touch typist. I'm mm. a very fast touch typist indeed. Can I dictate to you? <laughs> no, I've got <laughs> enough of my own to do, Frank, thank you. But um, uh, Margaret Yule Costa sent yeah. me, she sent you her Korean student too. Oh, yeah. No, there was a Korean student. She <laughs> went and interviewed Margaret, and Margaret said to me, couldn't she come? And she, what she was doing, she was visiting translators at work on a novel and getting them to type and talk aloud to her, say um, the translation, and say what they were thinking about choosing a word. And it wrecked my typing, trying <laughs> to do these two things at the same time. No, Margaret did send me her Korean student, but I declined because I couldn't imagine typing and talking about no, what I was doing work, at the I same time. And I have never tried voice-activated mm. software, but I know Margaret Chulcosta does mm. do it because she got repetitive strain injury in mm. her wrist and had to teach herself, mm. reteach herself, how to translate out loud rather oh, than yes. through her fingers, which mm. is very tricky. I mean, it happens in the summer school when, you, when you're working with students that you have to actually say what you're doing rather than just write it down and think about it later. Mm. It's very different, a different process. I just wondered if there's any more that, um, I, I think one of you mentioned cadence. Um, and I, I think that that sounds like something very difficult um, to get, I mean, particularly when you're translating, for example, from a Portuguese, African, Portuguese, African, or French African, where the cadence may be very different. Um, and once, if you, if you go too far, it just sounds, I imagine, like a bad translation. And I wonder how, um, how you find that balance. I mean, the answer may just be that you listen to yourself and when it sounds all right, you know, you stop. But it, it sounds like a very interesting and quite intangible process. Um, I think it's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's an even more difficult thing to describe what you do. Um, so I can't answer the question in any useful way, I think, except to say um, I read things aloud a lot. Um, I sometimes read bits mm. of the original aloud and bits of the, the translation aloud, uh, and you get to a point where you recognize them as, as the same thing. Uh, when I've, I, I did a, uh, an event, I did a reading um, in November uh, of the first chapter of Rainy Season, which was the only bit I translated at that point. It was very new. And I did this reading and I thought, oh, that sounds very nice, actually. It sounds very good. I was very pleased with it. And then I went home and I read the original again and I realized that what I'd done is I produced something which sounded perfectly nice, but had a completely different heartbeat to the, to the, the original. Um, I think the danger, there's a much bigger danger of straying in order to make something sound good than there is of producing something which just sounds bad. I think, I think producing something which sounds pleasant in English is, is not that difficult, but to do something which sounds pleasant in English and at the same time has the same sort of pulse as the, um, as the original is, is much more difficult. But as I say, even more difficult to describe, so I don't know if anyone can... Cadence, how, how do you do cadence? <coughs> I don't know, but does, does anything ever have the same cadence in any language as it has it's, in no, it's another language? No, it's never going to have exactly the same cadence. I've certainly, on, on more than one occasion, said to an author, look, you know, there is a passage here where actually I think what you are trying to do um, is, you know, that uh, I'm going to 
I'm going to need to sacrifice some of the things that you were saying in order um, to get the cadence that, uh, or some approximation of the cadence that you have. I always read dialogue um, aloud. Um, it's the only way that I, I can trust it. And even then, I suppose I have become enormously, with the translator-editor relationship, if you have a good editor, and there are many, many good editors of translators, um, I will stick enormously close, even in the clean second draft, which is the first thing an editor will see, um, to not what I would call literal, but something that is, I have really not strayed, and I will wait and uh, will tell my editors that what I want is if they, if they want to push, then fine. There is a limit to how far I will, I'm prepared to go um, before believing that I'm actually embellishing or doing something else. Um, but... Um, I find that um, a good editor is, is enormously helpful in that. Um, but no, I mean, I suppose it, your cadence, while it's enormously important in that there are novels I've translated where actually um, without that, I mean, one of the things that I would love to translate is Les Chants de Maldoror, um, the notion of translating Notre Monde without it being uh, an enormous singing outpouring uh, would be to fail the text at some level. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.